0: All right, we are going and get turned off um, before we release the kids um, to uh, Harbor Kids time, uh, we're going to kind of sink into uh, the second week of our series where uh, we're looking at third, 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 third week, third week of the series, which are called the Songs of Christmas. so we are unpacking the context of some songs, as well as digging into the context of the scriptures, because context is everything. Uh, That, uh, if you wanted to quote it, is Ben Witherington III, uh, a scholar and teacher uh, at a seminary. And so context is everything. We're going to sink into that. So we're going to look at the context of the song, hymn, carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem, one of the best-known hymns of the Christmas season. It originated in 1868 as a poem written for the Sunday School of the Church of the Holy Trinity on Philadelphia's House Square. Words are by the Episcopal rector Phillips Brooks, and the music by the church organist, Lewis H. Redner. If you want to be taken seriously, you always use your middle initial. Uh, so Lewis H. Redner did the music. Uh, it, the whole point was to have resonating themes of stillness and peace. Because this was written in the aftermath of the Civil War. So I want us to take note that we are now three for three in our Christmas hymns or carols that were written either in the midst of or in the aftermath of war. Each song then that we've seen is hungering and pleading for a silver, a sliver of shalom or even a tiny respite from violence and war. Here Philip's Phillips Brooks found inspiration for his hymn after the American Civil War during he did a year abroad in Europe and in Israel in 1865 and 66. While traveling, he wrote to the children of his parish about visiting Bethlehem on Christmas Eve and feeling reminded of the hymn singing of his home congregation. It was not until three years later, however, in 1868, that he reflected on his experience by writing a poem for his Sunday school students with the first stanza beginning, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by the church organist Louis H. Redner set the words to the music of a composition he had titled St. Louis. And the hymn had its first performance at Holy Trinity during the last Christmas season before Brooks left in 1869 to become rector of Boston's Trinity Church. Although Popular on both sides of the Atlantic, the carol has two different tunes it was set to. In the United States, St. Louis, written by Louis Redner, and in the United Kingdom, Canada, and Ireland, it is set to the tune of the English folk song Forest Green by Ralph Vaughan Williams, first published in the 1906 English hymnal. Most famous recordings of this song are by Elvis Presley, if you've heard of him and the mormon tabernacle choir which guides us into the birth scene in the little village known as bethlehem this birth scene has shaped an endless amount of what we call nativity scenes historically the nativity is credited to saint francis of assisi in the 12th century and personally, I find the nativity scene so beautiful. I think it carries this mixture of awe and wonder and joy. I love it, and it is all beautiful and very much needed in our war-torn world today. But when we give our attention to the actual historical context of the birth of Jesus in the little village of Bethlehem, we might need to reconsider what we call traditional, which I think leads us into some fun time of Christmas trivia. Shall we have a little fun? Here's how we'll do this. I'll ask a question, multiple choice. We're going to need hand raising, okay? So this morning, we're going to really nerd out and we're going to spend lots of time in this, so um, we're gonna have to have a little classroom time so we can get some hands because for a reward, you may choose either Peppermint Candy Cane, the original, or Skittles Fruity Candy Cane, okay? Uh, your choice, uh, I thought about saying, well, if you don't get the right answer, I might give you, you're just getting Peppermint, and you don't get to choose. But maybe you'd be like, well, that's what I wanted anyways. So uh, we're going to do this. Are you ready for some trivia? This is going to be lots of fun. Okay, first question. Which animals does the Bible say were present at Jesus' birth? A, cows, sheep, goats. B, cows, donkeys, goats. C, sheep and goats only. D, miscellaneous barnyard animals. E, none of the above. Sigh. D, D, miscellaneous barnyard animals. No. Which one do you want, though? Uh, Skittles. Skittles one. Barb. B, B as in boy? B as in boy. Cows, donkeys, goats. No. What would you like, though? Peppermint. Okay. Peppermint. 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 That, that one's not it. We'll give one more shot because now we're just whittling down. I mean, it's just kind of ridiculous. Chad? E? E, none of the above. Correct. Which would you like? Skittles. Yes, there are 12 flavors in one candy cane. It's like a rainbow of flavors, they say. <laughs> um, that's funny. Now, yes, in, according to our Bibles, there are zero animals mentioned in the text. Uh, whoops okay number two how did mary and joseph get from nazareth to bethlehem a donkey b camel c they both walked d joseph walked and mary rode a donkey sadie d what d joseph walked and mary rode a donkey no but you may pick a candy cane skittles Oh boy, you're just okay. Well, you can share. <laughs> Naomi, B. C. They both walked. No. <laughs> Which one would you like? Peppermint. You. Joe, B. Bee? Camel. No. Which one do you want? <laughs> you don't need. Oh, you don't need one. Bruce. Bruce, do you want fruit or do you want peppermint? Henry, which one you got? A, a donkey. No. Oh, what? That's question. Which one? Okay, yeah, so now that's all the things so I tricked you a little bit because um, the text doesn't say. Uh, The Bible does not say, now, um, Naomi, I think you said they both walked, is that right? Likely, likely, but again, the text doesn't say, what we do know is that Mary and Joseph were poor, and a donkey, actually, in the first century was quite expensive, so to have that, they may have borrowed one, um, so that Mary could have rode, Joseph would have walked, but it is actually likely that they both walked, and if you're thinking, how did Mary walk while she was really, really pregnant, we don't know how pregnant she was, we don't know how long they were in Bethlehem before she gave birth, so maybe she was walking in her first trimester, so I have no idea, we don't know according to the text, are we having a good time, I love it, okay, number three, how many angels spoke to the shepherds? A1, B3, C1000, D10000. Eli. B3? No. But what would you like? Skittles? Okay. Henry? A1. No. Which one would you like? Skittles. Good thing I got a lot of the skittles. We'll do we'll do one more. Jude? The text doesn't say. Oh, man. That is correct. What do you want? Skills. One of each. Yeah, 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 yeah. The text doesn't say kind of tricky because we have an angel that first speaks but then if you keep reading the text then all the angels begin to proclaim so and it just says all the how many thousands upon thousands upon thousands they guess but we don't know the text doesn't say how many people are now thinking like have their nativity scene in their mind and go where did the where did we come up with this exactly okay number four how many magi as we learned last week or wise men came to see jesus a3 b6 c9 d12 beth a3 no peppermint or skittles peppermint okay kathy 12 no what would you like Peppermint okay? Yeah. We have skittles. you may trade you may trade afterwards. All right, one more yes. The text doesn't say you are correct. Would you like skittles or peppermint? Skittles, Skittles. All right, are we having fun? The text doesn't say. Now, if you're thinking, well, wait a minute, in my nativity scene, we have three wise men, whatever the thing is. Yeah, I know because there are gold, frankincense, and myrrh as the gifts, but that's what we have is these three different kinds of gifts, but we don't know how many magi there were. Although scholars believe there were, some were probably closer to 12, but there is no idea according to the text It does not say. Number five. What did the angel say to the shepherds? A, wake up. A baby is born. B, Mary is wondering where you are. C, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Or D, none of the above. Max. D, none of the above. No, that's not correct. What would you like? Uh, Skittles. Skittles. Uh-huh. Gary. Gary. C, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Correct. Fruity or Skittles. Boy, you guys are all sorts of fun. Yes, okay. So now, and and everybody was thinking the text doesn't say, weren't you? The text, in fact, does say. (laughs) Yep. The angel. the, The first angel. Yeah, yeah, because it's in your right. It says the angel first, then it goes into, we don't know how many. Okay, six, I think this might be the last one. Uh, what does the Bible have the innkeeper saying to Mary and Joseph? A, there's no room at the inn. B, no room, but I have a stable you can use. C, both A and B. D, try the cave around the corner with a manger. Yes. We we don't know. Yeah, correct. Okay, Skittles or peppermint? Skittles? Because if you're thinking, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, there is no mention of an inn or an innkeeper in the text guest room is actually what is said and likely being a census it was probably a relative of Joseph's in whose house they first went to because that's what you would do when you would go to a census is find a relative and so that's the best scholars would guess but there is no mention of an inn or an innkeeper it just says there's no room for them in the guest room whatever guest room that is are we having all sorts of fun now, the, the point was not to ruin your um, nativity scene, although we did, but you see what has happened is we actually developed this on our own, this scene, just by kind of however we piece things together, and, and it's fine. It, for the most part, is very, very harmless, but I do have some questions, we do have some wonderings, but before we sink into then our time in the context, we'll let the kids, if you want to head off to Harbor Kids Now, kiddos, go for it, and we're going to sink into our time, you guys go have fun in your time. That, that's just lots of fun, Yes? Now we we did some trivia. Gosh, I don't know. Probably five years ago, we did some nativity trivia, (laughs) and uh, some folks came up and said, "You just ruined um, my my Christmas," (laughs) in a in a good way. so it was pretty fun and where's bruce bruce i remember after we really kind of picked this thing apart then as we started ticking towards easter bruce says to me hey uh we're coming uh coming up to easter are you going to ruin easter the way you ruined christmas <laughs> and i said well i'll do my best um When we sink into context, context matters. It shapes things. It's all fine, wonderful in many, many ways the nativity scene. I get it and we've done this. But, and there is a but here, what could happen if people clung to a precious cartoon-like scene and either ignored or never heard the actual context of the text, and then became quite dogmatic in defending the highly marketable nativity scene that we have. What might happen is it could lead to a billboard showing up like this. Just skip church, it's all fake news. So atheists in America put out lots of billboards up like this. Just skip church, it's all fake news. Now, that could lead to church folk arguing with those who like the billboard. Which, of course, would be a shame because the billboard actually creates a really great opportunity for a much-needed conversation. Because, as our fun trivia just revealed, much of the nativity scene as we display it is not the point or is it actually accurate. So instead of arguing, we could engage in a conversation around what is happening within and underneath the actual Christmas story. I find this really compelling because, one, I would answer, just skip church, it's all fake news. That nativity scene, oh yeah, it is fake news. But is there more going on? I'd love to have a conversation because where did you get this from? What are you thinking? What do you consider fake news? That kind of curiosity or inquiry would be really helpful rather than defensive, angry, how dare you kind of mentality doesn't really get us very far, does it? So I think it leads us into something. So before we sink into the biblical text and kind of a deep dive in the historical text, I want to encourage you, uh, and this was something I was thinking about, to pop up your hand and say, whoa, 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 could you repeat that, Wally? If we start get going and you're like, whoa, hey, could you repeat that? Please do So, or if you need to say, Wally, could you slow down because this gets me really, really excited and amped up and I might get cooking and you'd be like, oh, good sweet heavens, I can't hold what? Feel free to tell me to slow down. I think that's good because what we're going to sink into, I think the context is very big, far-reaching, and we need it, but I want us to all be in this together. Are you with me? Now then. I want to get into what is underneath, within the text, surrounding the text, underneath the text, because as we read the text, then all sorts of other things can be going off in our hearts and our heads, and it's really, really important, and I think we need it now more than ever. So if we could pray, and then we'll sink into the text first. Gracious God, we bless you for meeting us right here, right now right where we are. I bless you, God, because you do meet us as we are. And you lead us, guide us, invite us into more. So may the posture of my heart and the words of my mouth bring honor and glory to you. May we take that next right step toward you and with you now. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So we sink into the text. Matthew chapter 2 verses 1 through 3. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, astrologers from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Now, if you participated in some way, whether uh, online, listened to the podcast, or were with us last week, this text ought to sound familiar, because it's the same one from last week. But last week, we focused in on the astrologers, the magi, and a perspective on their travels and how they came from a long distance to give honor to Jesus, who it says was born King of the Jews and would later be known as King Of Kings. Now, this morning we're going to go and do a deep dive into the context surrounding Jesus' birth, specifically focusing on the character Herod. So, before we travel back in history, let's think about what this scene would look or feel like today if we were in Herod's place. So, imagine that you're at the height of your work career, and some folks show up to your cubicle, they say they have traveled from a distant land to heap honor and glory and gifts on the one who is going to replace you. They essentially say that history sees you as a fake and so they're excited to meet the real star of your work and they wonder if you could direct them to him. Now we're standing in Herod's sandals and pea-soaked tunic. Are, are we going, "Oh, Are you with me on how that would be like, "Oh, this guy is disturbed?" So we're going to sink into that. So now what we get to do is we get go back history. We get to go back to uh, high school history class, but if you're like me, I actually spent uh, my first three years in college, I was a a history major, and I was planning to be a history teacher, because I do love it, but what I found is my history teachers love them, but come on, why are you trying as hard as you can to put us to sleep? This stuff is incredible. So I thought we need to dial it off. And all these years later, I feel like that's a bit of what my job is, is to go ahead and say this stuff is incredible. Yeah, Doug. And all Jerusalem with him. So this news got out. This news got out. And all Jerusalem is disturbed with him, which we will sink into. Yep, I love it. That's good. We're gonna start in sixty-three BCE before Common Era. 63, when General Pompey led Rome to conquer Israel, destroying the temple in Jerusalem in the process. After which, Rome needed someone to rule and oversee Israel now, so Rome put a man named Antipater in charge. Antipater put his son, Herod, to kind of act as a sheriff of the Galilee region of Israel. Now, in the meantime, Julius Caesar was leading and organizing Rome until his assassination in 44 BCE. Now, the site where it is understood that Julius Caesar was killed is called Curia of Pompeii. It's a large rectangular meeting hall where the Senate of Rome often met, and it was surrounded by four large temples. After careful excavation, the sites where he was both assassinated and where Mark Antony oversaw his memorial and cremation were opened to the public this past June for the first time in over a century. And Sarah and I visited a month ago. So this first picture is uh, it gives you an idea. This is what it looks like today. This Curia of Pompeii where the Senate would meet. Next picture is they did this fantastic um, kind of reenactment of the Senate meeting to kick off the opening of this. So they did like this uh, reenactment of this this past June. And then where Julius Caesar was attacked by 40 of the senate 40 people of the senate and he was stabbed understood to be of stabbed 23 times in which they killed him just 1 month after they appointed him dictator for life of the roman republic but the senate feared his power and domination of the state so they assassinated him and the assassination actually had the opposite effect for what the senate had hoped now, this third picture is actually one then that I took when we walked and This is understood to be his memorial grave site where Mark Antony uh, held this memorial in cremation. And you see the little bit of red there? Every single day since they've opened it, there have been fresh flowers put on his gravesite to honor the Caesar from 2,100 years ago. They're still honoring doing that. But we now have, they have it set so you can walk up, Well, at least I assumed we could walk right up to it. I'm here. I didn't get arrested, so I'm assuming it was fine. Uh, Sarah may have been like, where are you going? I said, it's back here. This is where this is the spot. It doesn't say anything like we can't. (laughs) It's fine. After his accession can you think that they're still putting fresh flowers and they're like ah julius caesar 2100 years later after his assassination rome fell into a massive 13 year civil war throughout the war the roman empire was led by what is called a triumvirate so they split it into thirds the first third was led by roman general mark antony and one by Roman statesman Marcus Lepidus, and one by Julius Caesar's adopted nephew, Octavian, who was made heir by the will of Julius Caesar. Octavian and Antony would incrementally drain Lepidus of his authority, and then things began to grow tense between Mark Antony and Octavian especially when Mark Antony began a love affair with the queen of Egypt, Cleopatra, also known as uh, Elizabeth Taylor, Um, (laughs) right? Now... This was tense because Egypt was Rome's biggest threat, and now Mark Antony is having a love affair with her. So there's tension between Octavian and Mark Antony. And and then meanwhile, what Mark Antony thought, well, how I will begin to kind of relieve this is I've got an idea. But power for Octavian increased, and he would take the name Caesar Augustus, which means the divine Caesar. We're going to get into him next week. With the growing threat of the powerful Parthian Empire creating issues in the eastern Mediterranean, the Roman Senate, along with Augustus and Antony, made our boy Herod king of the Jews. The celebratory scene is quite famous with first century historian, we're going to hear a lot of, Josephus, recording this in his book War and his book Antiquities. The meeting was dissolved, and Antony and Caesar Augustus left the Senate House with Herod between them, preceded by the consuls and other officials. As they went to offer sacrifice and to lay up the decree in the capital, On this first day of his reign, Herod was given a banquet by Antony. Thus did Herod take over royal power as a client king that is a puppet king of Rome. For Israel, they're like, we'll let you rule on our behalf, Herod. And so this takes place. So now to try and smooth things over with Augustus, Mark Antony Antony marries Augustus' sister, Octavia, So mom and dad named him Octavian and her Octavia. Come on, it's just confusing. But here's the thing, you have a tension-filled relationship and Mark Antony said, I know how I'll relieve that, I'll add a bunch of in-laws to the mix. Because that's a good idea. Or it's like dipping an atomic bomb into glycerine. Plus, Mark Antony continued his love affair with Cleopatra, which simply makes him a glutton for punishment. Mark Antony eventually marries Cleopatra, and Antony and Augustus go to war in 31 BCE, known as the uh, War, the Battle of Actium. Augustus defeats Antony, leading Antony and Cleopatra to do a Romeo and Juliet-style double suicide. Then, during all of this, Herod, who had been loyal to Mark Antony, throws himself at Augustus' feet in the aftermath of his victory, declaring his allegiance to Augustus. In 27 BCE, Caesar Augustus is anointed the singular leader ruler of Rome, becoming the first and arguably most uh, powerful emperor and successful emperor of Rome. Immediately upon his kingship, Herod got to work. If you're taking notes, really important. On his two main responsibilities. Two main responsibilities. The first, and we're just in history, friends. The first he enacted with the mantra, law and order. Wherein he punished, imprisoned, and killed anyone who dared oppose him or Caesar. And so he marketed this mantra, law and order, that's what I bring. The second main responsibility was taxation. Now, prior to 63 BCE, the Jewish people paid a single temple tax. But after Pompey conquered Israel and destroyed the temple, Rome added a second tribute to the peasants. And when Herod imposed his kingship, not only did he not remove those taxes, he in fact added a third tithe, another 10% tax. That now scholars say that the common Israelite in the first century paid up to 90% of their income in taxes. It was known as a triple taxation. Josephus, our historian, wrote about this extensively. He says this Since Herod was involved in expenses greater than his means, he was compelled to be harsh toward his subjects. For the great number of things on which he spent money as gifts to some caused him to be the source of harm to those from whom he took his revenues. He had reduced the entire people to helpless poverty. This is Israel in the first century. Aware that his approval rating was sinking, Herod was sly and he maneuvered himself to win over the Jewish people with his biggest and most important project, rebuilding their temple in Jerusalem, using their money, of course. His efforts led to the temple being the largest, most magnificent temple in the ancient world. He also built several other temples throughout Israel to honor the so called divine Caesar Augustus. The rebuilt temple in Jerusalem was a marvel and displayed the work of a brilliant mind. Josephus writes about the rebuild. This, next slide. In the 15th year of his reign, Herod restored the temple, and by erecting new foundation walls, he enlarged the surrounding area to double its former extent. The expenditure devoted to this work was incalculable. Its magnificence never surpassed. He restored at a lavish cost in a style no way inferior to that of a palace, and he called that palace part of it Antonia in honor of Antony. Now, we're going to look at first the model. I love this model in Jerusalem. Uh, next slide. You go to this picture, there is a massive model in Jerusalem they have of what the temple looked like with the surrounding area at the time. So you have this, next slide, Um, what I did is then in marker, I circled, that is the Antonia Fortress. And so Herod would spend a good amount of time there. Pontius Pilate later on would spend lots of time in the Antonia Fortress. Uh, what is known there. And then this next slide is actually um, modern uh, Israel today, the Temple Mount today, as it is from an aerial view. As you can see, there is so much of the temple that is there. And on this right side, this was what would have been known as Solomon's Colonnade. It would have been massive and huge. You have the Dome of the Rock in the middle and you have El Aska Mosque is this one down here in front. As he came into power, Herod also gathered, ready? He comes into power, he gathers all of the members of the Jewish ruling council, which we know as the Sanhedrin, all of them that opposed him, he gathered together and had them executed. Then he replaced them with his own political supporters. When in charge, get rid of all those who have opposing ideas and install puppet supporters. Can you imagine... Herod would not tolerate any sort of dissent, and as recorded by Josephus, Herod even had the audacity to erect a giant golden eagle, I think next slide, and the golden eagle is one of Roman Empire's main symbols, so it looks like this. He had it erected over the great gate of the temple, which was doubly objectionable as a symbol of Roman domination, as well as a violation of the commandment against graven images. Remember this? So, next slide. He put this massive golden eagle... On the doorframe going into the temple, imagine a golden eagle at the doors as you go into worship as a Jew, and he did this to remind the Jewish people of who it is that even allows you to worship, let alone be alive. It is Rome. Both Herod and Rome had no problem knitting together national and military pride with religious fervor. Josephus also records how to to the truly devout people of Yahweh, Herod was also offensive in his royal ideology, claiming that he was the king by the will of God, and that he should be honored for bringing long-awaited peace and prosperity to the nation. Josephus further records that 40 young disciples of two respected Torah teachers, Judas and Matthias, swiped the eagle off the entrance and chopped it into pieces because Rome's national symbol found in the temple would be considered a graven image and you are to not have that anywhere within God's house is how they understood it. Deeply offended, Herod gathered the Jewish leaders in a theater. He lectured them about how much he had done for them, including the opulent rebuilding of their temple. Herod then had them publicly burned alive. And then he followed by anointing a new high priest, one who would be subordinate to him and to Rome. Herod's strategy was to intimidate all people through force and violence, fire or kill those who didn't uphold his preferred politics, and then hire those who will simply puppet the king's preferences. It is so heartbreaking, the political turmoil they had back then. Further relational information about Herod. His brother-in-law, a very young high priest, had become more popular than Herod and so he had an unfortunate drowning accident in a pool that archaeology has since verified to be very, very shallow. Huh, how might that have happened? In another act to curry favor with the Jewish people, Herod married a woman, note takers, important, named Miriam. She was a Hasmonean princess, or better known as a Maccabean princess. Why is this important? Thank you for asking. It was the Maccabeans who revolted against the Seleucid Seleucid king Antiochus Epiphanes IV and his Hellenizing of the temple in 167 BCE thus helping the Jewish people temporarily reclaim the temple from the Greeks because Antiochus Epiphanes did the unthinkable. He brought pigs into the temple, had them slaughtered and sacrificed on an altar in the temple in Jerusalem. So the Maccabeans revolt against this, reclaim the temple, reconsecrate it for a moment of time. This victory is still celebrated today. In fact, it began this past Thursday. It's called Hanukkah. This is the celebration of this. Now, again, all of this can be found in the writings of first century historians Josephus, Tacitus, Suetonius, and Pliny the Elder And in the second book of Maccabees, which is known as the Apocrypha, which is in some translations of our Bible, mine, the N-R-S-V, it has the Apocrypha, oh good, second Maccabees in there. It's not recognized universally as part of the canon, but it is very, very helpful. Now, there was a significant issue with Herod marrying Miriam. He was already married, to a woman named Doris, who had birthed him a son. But because they were not of royal lineage, he had them both exiled and essentially erased from society. Doris' wife and his son, gone. So, how was his relationship with Miriam, you ask? Well, one time when Herod went out to war, he told her uncle, who was her overseer watched her while he was gone. He told her uncle, "Kill her if I do not come home safely from war. If I'm killed, kill her." And then, when he came safely home from war, his her uncle told Miriam uh, Herod's plan. When confronted by Miriam, Herod said it was because of his devotion to her that he couldn't stand the idea of anyone else being with her. Aww. It just warms the cockles of your heart, does it not, sweetie Herod? Now, she then refused to sleep with him, so Herod falsely accused her of adultery, had her put on trial, and then had her strangled to death but later named a tower in his palace in her honor. Thanks, pumpkin. Herod also uh, executed two of his sons who were also falsely accused of plotting against him. Five days before Herod died, he executed a third son, the one who falsely framed the other two, Herod so craved to be honored and revered that on his deathbed, he arrested a number of beloved nobles, imprisoned them in the Hippodrome at Caesarea, one of my favorite spots, Sue, Dave, remember, Doug, whoo, come on, so had them imprisoned there, then set their execution for the day he died thinking that if beloved people were executed, he would ensure that there would be mourning, not celebration, at the time of his death. But when he died, the nobles were released and the people celebrated. Now, Josephus records that of Herod's 37-year reign, 34 of those years were spent enslaving, punishing, and killing anyone who would not bow down to him. He was obscenely wealthy by way of his vicious tax system and his wealth is still on display to this very day through much of what he had constructed throughout Israel. There is no denying that Herod was brilliant, yet his genius is overshadowed by his ruthless violence to those on the underside of his power. Some highlights, real quick, of what Herod built in Israel. Oh, and Terry's there. Yes, and you get to. Terry's usually first in line, actually, when we went to Israel last year. She was first on the hike. First uh, picture this is a palace, one of five that Herod had in Israel. This one is on Mount Masada. He had a palace, massive uh, buildings put on top of this mountain in Israel in the desert. Masada, these are some storehouses he had in there. He had a huge swimming pool on top of the mountain in a region that got less than three inches of rain a year. Yet he had a fresh swimming pool on his Mount Masada. Second pick is his palace at Caesarea, which I I named Caesarea Maritima. So today you can see this is where the palace sat, the floor. He had a pool there. It's right on the Mediterranean. It's absolutely stunning. Um, There in the Hippodrome is to your right, if you were to look. But next picture is his aqueducts that he built in Caesarea. His aqueducts aqueducts were mimicked and replicated all throughout because they said they were so brilliant. For hundreds of years, they just replicated what Herod did because he was so smart with his systems. And then the next uh, pictures, we're going to go to probably his most famous palace called the Herodium. Now, the Herodium was about five miles from Jerusalem. So uh, Balazs below is an, an, an artist today who does some fantastic drawings. So I grabbed him first. I go to his website, Balage below. Uh, I could spell it, but w- whatever. Um, so he did some great sketchings. This is a bit what the Herodium looked like with the pool down below, a sketching. And um, it's five miles from Jerusalem, about three ish miles from the village of Bethlehem. It was constructed to celebrate the defeat of the Parthians. Herod built it with a four towers at four towered fortress stood slightly higher than the temple in Jerusalem. He was very intentional about that. If you are Herod, you want to send a message about how powerful, wealthy, and important you are. So you can't just build a palace, you have to make it spectacular. And you build it to stand over all of the surrounding towns and villages around you. Next slide, I love this picture. This picture of the Herodium gives today, this is what the Herodium looks like. As you can see an aerial view, there is a theater they've recently excavated. This building above it is where they're still currently excavating where they found his tomb. So we get into that, this fantastic thing. Uh, next slide is a picture of the pool in the lower level of the Herodium. This is where the pool was. And then the next one gives a description, uh, a picture I took of the description of the palace fortress. And this gives, uh, helpful. The shape of the mountain palace fortress was unique in the Hellenistic Roman world. This fortress was an inseparable part of the gigantic complex of greater Herodium, which was built in Herod's day. This unusual structure served simultaneously as a palace, a fortress, and a monument because it's where he will be buried. The round structure was built first and then toward the end of Herod's life earth was poured around it creating an artificial cone-shaped mount. It became a monument that stood out in all directions enveloping and accentuating the king's tomb on the mountain's northern slope, which helped by burying it, helped preserve it so we can see it today. What they are doing excavating-wise right now is unbelievable, yes? Those who went last year with me. Herod Here's the thing. He had dirt moved to this location in order to construct a mountain. He built a mountain, then put his palace fortress on top of it. The four towers on the fortress each stood seven stories high. Many scholars, and this is fantastic, believe that this, the Herodium, is the image Jesus is playing with when he says to his disciples in Matthew 17, 21. Next slide. Truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, pointing at the Herodium, move from here to there and it will move. In other words, if you have even a kernel of faith, you can do more than Herod and his wealth. Are you with me? Now, the following picture from from near the top of the Herodium was taken this past year by pastor of Wyoming Harbor, Jordan Stonehouse, which gives us a fantastic visual of Herod's intent to have his empire cast a shadow over Israel. Is that not great? And that was his hope. Whatever I'm building, may it just overshadow everything else. Now, now... With that, let's step back into our original text and see what pops. Matthew 2, 3. When King Herod heard this, when he heard them come to him and say, Hey, where's the king of the Jews, the one born king of the Jews? He was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Now when we read this... Herod is disturbed. The context informs us. Why is all of Jerusalem disturbed then? Oh, I think we know why. Because if this guy, with those who are underneath him in power, would they not be shuddering in fear for what this guy might do when someone just said to him, the real king has been born? So let's look what's underneath this word disturbed in the Greek. Next slide. It's taradzo. Go ahead and say taradzo. It means to agitate, to cause one inward commotion, take away calmness of mind, to stir up, to strike one's spirit with fear and dread. Herod is spinning. He is out of control. And what we've seen of him when he's in control... For, for us then, when we read this text that the king is going to be born in Bethlehem, it's awful, we find it, oh, it's warm and wonderful. But in fact, and like we call it, what's well, good news. But this message would gurgle up something very different in Herod. Because what does Herod know or what does he learn in the process of this story? In our Matthew text, Herod asks the priests and teachers of the law where the ruler of Israel is to be born. They will go on to quote the prophet Micah saying the Christ will be born in Bethlehem and will come from the line of David. And this is where things come into play contextually. Herod is an Edomite, which goes all the way back to Esau, son of Isaac, brother of Jacob. Jacob will receive his father's blessing and re- later receive a new name, Israel. As part of Jacob's blessing, Esau's ancestors, it says, will bow down to Jacob's ancestors. Esau's ancestors are known as the Edomites. Jesus li- Jacob's lineage leads to Jesus. What's happening? Whoa. When Herod hears this, he goes, I'm an Edomite. Born in the line of David, I know it's happening. I know it's going down. I know it's been being said for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh Uh-oh. He's told of the origins and ancestry of the coming Christ, which weaves through Abraham to Jacob right through King David. So disturbed is a very mild way to say what's probably swimming within Herod. Herod knows that the one born in Bethlehem would be his undoing. That is a huge giddy up. The ancient genealogy is like a picture in an Instagram post. It's what lures the audience in and pleads with them to ask about the larger story behind the picture. For a Jewish writer like Matthew, a genealogy would be the obvious starting point because it would be the most common way to draw awareness to the importance and the depth and the significant pedigree of the one that's being highlighted here, Jesus. Jesus. From the very beginning, Jesus is being attached to the great King David, the patriarch of the Hebrew people, Abraham. The King David part is huge because the Hebrew scriptures highlight the coming Christ would be from the direct line of David. But at that time, somebody already held the title King of the Jews, Herod. And now Herod is told there's a new child born who is King of the Jews with the proper lineage. Which adds to the awe of how Josephus records that Herod previously, here's the thing that it records, Herod previously had all official registries destroyed so that no one could prove to have a better pedigree than him. This is why genealogies are so important because they can subvert the tyranny of empire. But we tend to see a bunch of unpronounceable names and we skip it, which I get. Because if you actually read the entire genealogy, there's a chance that you begin to study the back of your eyelids and sugar plums start dancing in your head. I get it, but Matthew has just announced that the one the world had been waiting and longing, thirsting and pleading and praying for has finally arrived. In the flesh. And he is attached to a much larger story laced with messy characters, much like you and I. And it's not just the contextual background of Jesus that matters here, that speaks to the upside down nature of this story. Quickly, let's peek at the context of the one who gave birth to him. What's Jesus' mother's name? Mary, which is Greek for Miriam. So Herod marries a Miriam who is a royal princess. You knit yourself to power, wealth, and royalty. But Miriam, the mother of Jesus, is known as poor, humble teenager. Another giddy-up. Wow, this story is upside down in so many ways. Herod was wealthy, powerful, renowned, ruthless, and very self-serving. Jesus was born poor, weak, hidden, humble, and chose to live others-focused. When we understand the context, we find two very different stories and two very different kingdoms happening. And the kingdom that is most commonly believed and trusted to be more powerful, even right up to today, is not the narrative Jesus the Christ chose to live by. We see and hear the way of Herod all around us today. The way of Herod is this. Next slide. The way of Herod is the way of paranoia the way of violence, the way of assuming the worst of others, the way of silencing the voices that disagree, the way of surrounding oneself with only the people who will tell you what you want to hear, the way of outright crushing anyone who is deemed a threat to one's power and authority. That is the kingdom of Herod. In the midst of a kingdom of chaos, the divine is born among us, and prayerfully in this season born within us. This is the most radical of stories that the Christ would step into such a world in innocence and infancy as one of us for all of us. So now when we sing the lyrics, the hopes and fears of all the years are met In thee tonight. There are two kingdoms colliding in these lyrics the empire of Herod, with his rather large yet insecure ego, and the humble power of Jesus, the Christ, who comes to liberate all people in the Christmas story. So let's use the scriptures to frame a question for you and I today. Next slide. What gets disturbed in you during the Christmas season? Because if I take the tension from last week and thinking about a Christ that can easily become an accessory to our lives rather than the center, and then I add this Herod element... It unveils a society, please don't miss this, a society that might proclaim Jesus as king, but really wants to live in Herod's kingdom. Can you feel that today? I can find the threat surfacing in my own life a desire for Jesus to be king, but really wanting to live in Herod's kingdom of comfort and luxury, power and status. The Christmas story provides a direct confrontation to the Herods that we find all around us in our world today, including the one that lurks within us. So I want to... Create a little space and let the poetry of song invite us to reflect on this, reflect on this story, reflect on the context. So I'll I'll invite uh, the musicians to come and lead us into contemplation through poetry, through song, through music, that we will sing and then a word of benediction.